So hello, first of all, and good afternoon. Hello, everyone. Hello. So let me just set a tone here because first and foremost, I'm a DJ. And so really what I need is energy and engagement. Like, so just be you all. So if you hear a little something and you agree, just give me a mm, mm-hmm. You can feel free to engage in here. Um, and just to have like an informal conversation um, about some very serious things, um, uh, particularly my sort of artistic response to white supremacy, um, my artistic response to you know, various forms of sort of neo-colonialism, um, my response to this sort of just political firestorm that's happening in America and that's been happening um, for the past few centuries, and, and, and the role that DJs play right, in this conversation, because actually we play a critical role in all of these conversations. Um, so my name is DJ Lene Denise. I am born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I was born in 1975, and I share that because I think it's critically important to understand the time or the context of my work. I grew up in the 1980s. I grew up witnessing the Ronald Reagan era, the Margaret Thatcher era, right, the apartheid era. Um, and also the sort of development and emergence of hip hop culture, of house music, um, of Kwaito music in South Africa, um, and, and of breakdance culture, of graffiti culture, also of literature in particular. I'm thinking about black women fiction writing that happened. Um, typically, um, the work that I engage is based in the States, but also thinking about you know, writers such as June Jordan, who has Caribbean ancestry, Audre Lorde. Um, and so, kind of putting all of these ideas together, um, I wanted to kind of just think through DJ culture as a, a sort of theoretical model that I could use to investigate deeper questions. So first, let me say this. I'd like to thank Aruna for inviting me, because I think that this is an incredible venue and institution. Um, and I think that to create this infrastructure for hip hop to be given this platform um, is super important. So thank you so much. Also and just the grace and the sort of ease around the process of logistics um, that helps artists kind of um, really show up and ready to do the work um, because we haven't been like boggled down with these major details. Also would like to thank Ida Kipp, um, who I believe is one of the most important artists and educators and cultural producers in the African diaspora. I don't say that lightly. I don't say that because I know her. I say that because when I travel the world, I know that I can drop a name and say, do you know Ida? and Ida, um, which is her twin, and the work that they've done with Kip Republic, the community engagement and support of artists that they've done in international arts programs around the world, and just the general networking and the community building that's happened, which is actually why I'm here now, right? Ida's connection to Aruna. So I just want to say thank you to Ida and to Kip Republic. Um, and that I'm officially one of their artists, so I'm looking forward to <laughs> sharing some of my work both as a DJ, as a lecturer, um, with KIPP Republic and the events that they do around the city, around the country, really. Um, and I'd also like to thank Simone Zefouk for being critically important, for like weaving the cultural fabric of black excellence <laughs> in Amsterdam. Um, she's a literary giant, a poet, an organizer, and a true scholar of transnational blackness, um, and a student of so many things, a scholar of so many things. Um, and just truly, truly, truly an incredible thinker. So you guys with me? Yes. Cool. 
So DJ Scholarship, um, I turn, I actually, uh, I'm looking, my computer seems to be fine. I coined the phrase DJ Scholarship um, in 2013. And let's take a look here. Start with some images. So I turned the, 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 term, the, the phrase DJ Scholarship in 2013 to explain DJ culture as a mixed mode research practice, subversive in its ability to shape and define social experiences, and shifting the public perception of the DJ um, as purveyor of party music to an image of a DJ that is an archivist or a cultural worker, an organizer, um, and someone who provides access to music considered to have critical value. So there are four cultural practices of DJ scholarship, um, and I'll do a brief summary um, just because I am in the sort of process of creating a whole sort of like book around the concept of DJ scholarship. But the four cultural practices are number one, chasing samples. Number two, digging through the crates. Number three, studying album, album cover art. And number four, reading liner notes. Um, I would say that those four cultural practices are sort of foundation um, of DJ culture and that chasing samples for me was an introduction to a sort of research practice, right? Listening to this music in the 1980s called hip hop and having no idea that these producers and the DJs were actually collecting music or listening to the music of their parents and grandparents and kind of creating this world or this repository or this cultural institution of memory called hip hop so through chasing samples, I discovered artists like Led Zeppelin. I discovered artists like Bach. I discovered artists like you know, um, you know, Aretha Franklin in her 1960s pre-Respect work, right? And these sort of underground side B songs that end up sort of becoming a part of the development of my ear as a DJ. Um, and so the chasing samples piece is my introduction to that research practice. And the next one is digging through the crates. And thinking about the crates metaphorically um, as you know, uh, a sort of opportunity to exercise your intellectual curiosity um, by digging deeper into the samples, not just asking where the original song came from, but perhaps thinking about the social context. Oh, that song was created in Brazil. What's the connection to you know, colorism in Brazil and the artists to get featured on certain art, you know, albums? And so thinking about music beyond this sort of entertainment value. Um, and the third is the studying album cover art and the kind of visual culture and literacy um, that you have access to by looking at black albums, in particular black music albums, albums in general, but for me, growing up in a household and seeing Parliament Funkadelic albums, seeing Ohio Player albums, you know, seeing Tina Marie albums and kind of learning that my parents were telling a history through these images. Um, and also seeing images of myself, seeing images of Nina Simone, um, images of Miriam Makeba, um, images of, you know, uh, uh, folks who, Roberta Flack and other folks who, sort of had this um, role in the shaping of, of, my, of my ear, but also my eye. And then finally, reading liner notes, really important to me. Are you all familiar with liner notes? OK, this is a different crowd. <laughs> so cool. So liner notes, um, again, kind of the literary work that accompanies an album, social context sometimes included, maybe names the personnel, the, you know, the conceptual ideas that created the album, an album that comes to mind that had incredible liner notes, for example, is like 
Bitches Brew, Miles Davis, right? Um, and learning about his sort of evolution, his kind of engagement with electronic music after being a, a, a serious sort of um, pioneer in the development of bebop culture, um, abstract jazz, and then learning through the liner notes that he was introduced to the synthesizer, right? And it did something to his relationship with the trumpet, right? It expanded it. And so that information, that knowledge, production, um, is being created by the people who write those liner notes. And so that led me to a critical reading practice. So I moved from reading liner notes to reading album reviews and, you know, and Village Voice or other like New York Times or whatever it was and kind of thinking about music more critically, which led me to read books that were written by musicologists or ethnomusicologists or sociologists and kind of understanding the relationship between scholarship, DJ culture, and music, right? Not separating DJ culture from a world of intelligence, which is sometimes what happens. We want the DJ to play what we want them to hear, right? Versus allowing them to present the research that they've carried out um, to create those samples, um, the research that they've carried out to make these important connections that define why they would mix one song with the other, right? So my work is rooted in making sure that we understand that first and foremost, black music exists beyond its entertainment value, particularly because black folks have been locked out of multiple industries, right? And music has been an industry where we have been able to sort of assert our humanity, right? And communicate directly to each other, even though there is typically a middleman when you think about just this kind of music industrial complex, but to communicate coded messages to each other. So part of my work has been in decoding those messages that come through lyrics, right? Y'all with me? So um, that's an overview of DJ scholarship and those four cultural practices. This is just an example of what that practice looks like in action. Um, one of the projects that I took on was kind of tracing Nina Simone's roots in the Netherlands um, and learning about her relationship to Amsterdam as well as, I know I'm not gonna pronounce as well, but Nijmegen, um, and traveling there and actually going to a music store and talking to the owner who was so excited about my questions because he had an oral history available as someone who collects and cares for her music. Um, and so I asked him, like, what did he witness? And he talked about, you know, just how she would walk around the city and go to local events or how she would perform for intimate crowds or the fact that she enjoyed swimming. And so I ended up speaking to her swimming teacher who was in the hotel where she used to live because I went there as well. And I was just going there to film the, the swimming pool. I mean, the timing on this was, I think, maybe Nina Simone working from someplace and making sure that I had access to her story because the other part of that is learning that it was here in the Netherlands where Nina Simone was sort of coerced into taking drugs that would, um, I guess, support her struggle with mental health issues. Although those mental health issues, as she clearly articulated, was directly related to her experience with the racist and sexist music industry, right? And just the American entertainment industry at large, which has monumental consequences on black and brown people. And really, people, period, when you think about artists like Janis Joplin, and, right, even George Michael, and just folks who have, like, you know, suffered under Amy Winehouse, who have just sort of 
suffered at the hands of just these eyes and also the exploitation and the expectations that we place on artists. Um, and so that was part of the sort of, um, you know, just thinking about Nina Simone beyond the sensationalism around her quote unquote strange behavior. So digging deeper, coming to the Netherlands was a part of a sort of pilgrimage in a way to, to honor her legacy beyond simply listening to the music. So DJ scholarship is a way of knowing, um, it's performance, it's an approach to music, and it's a mode of understanding what I call digital migrations through the worlds of the black sounds that are produced in it. So in other words, when I think about digital migration, um, much of my work is connected to South Africa. And um, I went to South Africa for the first time in 2001. And I remember being picked up by a little van, um, the vans that um, populate, the, the taxis that populate um, the city. And um, I kept hearing this music that for me sounded like house music, but it was slowed down. And I was like, okay, this sounds like, and my immediate black American connection was like, oh, they're creating house music, right? Not even giving them the space, the voice to think about how it sort of was created based on what was already there. But I asked the driver what this sound was, and he said that it was called, anyone know? Kwaito, right? I thought you were shaking your head because you may be. So Kwaito was this form of electronic music that was really developed in the townships of South Africa, um, sort of at the end of what you call the decade of resistance in the 1980s, um, where there were massive forms of protest but then other, these other sort of day-to-day -day and like mundane forms of protest that happened in the township, which was to simply gain access to music outside of the sort of apartheid regime that allowed for limited expo exposure to like this global sound, right? So in this context, in the 1980s as a part of the resistance movement, there were places called shabines in the townships, which were underground spaces where alcohol could be sold because it was illegal to be black and drink alcohol, but also that this music from America, from Jamaica, can be listened to, right? So yes, they were listening to um, music in the diaspora, but what was interesting to me was what was sort of indigenous in terms of this kind of sonic representation of the life of a South African in multiple regions in the country. Um, so learning about, oh, wait, and learning about Zulu, right? And learning about, you know, the approach to dance based on place, like Pansulu and Soweto. Um, and so what's interesting to me is part of my work in thinking about chasing these samples and digging through the crates is that I just completed reading a book by Miriam Makeba, her autobiography, or rather her biography written with a writer, um, her story, sort of her oral history, and thinking about Miriam Makeda as this central figure that we can use to understand multiple, the politics of multiple continents. Um, so, of course, Miriam Makeda is from South Africa, um, was a jazz singer, traditional South African singer, um, and was, quote unquote, discovered by Harry Belafonte, who is a black American activist and singer, but also Caribbean. Um, and so, her narrative, I've discovered, has been really flattened, right? That there's a discovery story that erases just decades of histories and then her intimate connection to Africa. Um, so say, for example, you know, Miriam Makeba had like 
five passports once she was exiled from South Africa so that she could travel between the States and Europe and Africa, although she was exiled, right, because of her political position in America, which included things like Marion Stokely Carmichael, who was a black nationalist and who advocated for self-defense alongside Malcolm X, but was a student of Malcolm X. So also thinking about Marion Makiba's first time landing in Europe, her first time leaving um, South Africa was here in Amsterdam, right? That she landed here and then from here, she had a layover here, technically. But <laughs> it was interesting to know that she landed here and then traveled to London and from then, from that point forward, her sort of, her, her political and musical career began. And so South Africa has been dear to me. So that Kwaito moment um, was also important because I was listening to a singer by the name of Busi Mlango, and she is also from Durban and Zulu woman no longer with us. Um, and so when I went to South Africa, I don't know, I, musically, sonically, it spoke to everything that I am musically. And this is after years of listening to reggae, classic rock, drum and bass, soul, jazz, funk, whatever, it, Latin jazz, Brazilian, bossa nova, whatever it was. But when I went to South Africa, um, my curiosity and everything that kind of makes me, I think, an artist and a thinker was kind of called to attention. And so it just became a primary focus for my work. So I started um, a series called The Afro-Digital Migration. And I was thinking about the way that music travels. I was thinking about the fact that music could travel when people, black people in particular in South Africa, could not travel. That black, black South Africans were denied passports, right? But that that music provided them an opportunity to be mobile. And that's deep, right? An opportunity to be mobile, an opportunity to um, be in a conversation um, with black musicians in particular around the world. Um, and so to think about and to trace and track how there have been sort of iterations of digital migrations based on decade, you know, landing in the 80s was very interesting to me to think about, which oftentimes I don't think we think about enough, what kind of music was being created in the 1980s in South Africa and the height of resistance against, right, um, the Dutch's South African apartheid, you know, social engineering project? What kind of music was being listened to? Like, how about we humanize um, South Africans and not solely think of them as victims of, um, but actually think of them as active, creative people in resisting, but also just living, not just resisting but also living and creating as human beings do. And what were those creations and do we care to ask questions about what was being created in the face of that extreme violence? Um, and so I think that the 1980s just presents an important time for the way that music was migrating digitally, right? Because we're talking about the introduction of electronic music in a certain way, post-1979, post-disco era, early not just hip hop, but also house music, early not just house music, but also techno, but also electro-funk, and like I said, kwaito, right? So all of these different forms of electronic music and also dub and dance hall, right? And other forms of electronic music um, in different parts of the diaspora, but those are central to the sort of um, sonic signature of the 1980s, though that narrative is dominated by hip hop Right? We don't think about hip hop as being born from disco, 
but it absolutely is, which means that hip hop was born from queer culture, right? Um, a queer culture that centered women's pleasures and so, and just sort of um, visibility for black queer people. Um, and so this electronic sort of emergence of a black Atlantic sound um, was happening at a time when there was supposedly a massive digital divide, right? We were talking about the 1980s digital divide, like black folks are way behind in their sort of use of technology. But this happens to be the time where we were creating some of the most sophisticated music in the world, globally, and we were all in conversation, right? And how does that happen? How do those songs land in different places? How are those regional rhythms kind of defining conversations and also responding to the political and social conditions um, of place? So geomusicology in South Africa um, is something that is interesting to me. Um, and then when you think about, again, you know, using Mary Makeba even in the 80s and her relationship with Nina Simone, um, it's important to think about how these artists were navigating the music industry at that time, because as I talk about electronic music, as I talk about Nina Simone, and as I talk about Miriam Makeba, we also have to talk about how they were actively exploited as artists by the music industry, right? And certainly the number of hip hop artists who signed contracts, house music artists who signed contracts, Nina Simone who signed contracts without reading the sort of fine lines and eventually having their music and their masters owned by others which also led to certain sort of mental responses that other folks would, I think, um, sort of misinterpret as simply being crazy <laughs> when really we're talking about, you know, just an extension of um, just massive exploitation that I think could be as aligned with what we understand to be slavery in terms of labor, right? So um, I think that just with the Afro-digital migration, um, there were multiple opportunities for me to um, make a connection between my work and, and what was happening in South Africa, particularly in the 80s, but also paying close attention to post-apartheid South Africa. So one of the things that um, my work does is looks at like black geographies, um, and these are a few case studies where the first, the Afro-digital migration, house music, and post-apartheid, um, was a mix that I created in 2012 after returning to South Africa um, and returning with a set of questions, a set of questions that were informed by those cultural practices, right? Did I hear a sample um, from someone who used, you know, one of Hugh Masekela's songs, maybe Grazing in the Grass? What happened when I chased that sample? Oh, I learned that Hugh Masekela too was in exile. What was he in exile from? What was his political affiliation? Oh, I learned that Hugh Masekela was absolutely actively reading Steve Biko, right? And like thinking about Hugh Masekela's relationship to Winnie Mandela. And so showing up in the townships with and in the communities and the artist communities with questions about folks who were there and DJs. And I find that South African DJs, um, I mean, without generalizing, I mean, I have to generalize, I have yet to hear a South African DJ that did not have a scientific understanding of blending, because I, I, like, I, I don't say that lightly in terms of DJ culture, the importance of the blend and precision and counting and rhythm and time. And I, I get chills thinking about 
how I would watch South African DJs um, manipulate, master, reinterpret, translate, break down, unpack, and present music using this technology and then thinking about their history, incredible, right? Again, if you're listening and not just wanting to be entertained, then you might be on the dance floor being like, huh, I wonder, right, what this person is interested, if, what the, who this person is, how they've studied, because they are masters of their craft. Who is that person? What did they see? Those are the questions that I was interested in. So I went to South Africa um, and had conversations with, with local DJs and also organized parties. I happened to be in South Africa at a time that um, Mandela, Mandiba passed. And so I was able to spin a party with a number of women DJs who were you know, very much so talking about not just Madiba, but also Winnie Mandela. And so that night, we were able to kind of bring this fuller story of South Africa's history that includes Winnie Mandela in the celebration um, and honoring of his passing, I should say. Um, and so there are opportunities then to use club culture and to use the DJ mix to kind of push these conversations and to, and to think through the music. So I created that first mix, the Afro-Digital Migration, by sharing music that traveled with me. I mean, when I say digital migration, I literally want you all to think about what the USB has done to the dance floor and what happens when DJs are traveling from Rotterdam to Jamaica or when DJs are traveling from London to Rwanda with USB sticks and how that then musically changes the soundscape, adds to it. Um, and so those conversations happen. And so the Afro-Digital Migration mix was the first sort of iteration of that. Um, I created a mix and wrote liner notes, my own liner notes that talked about some of the questions I had. Um, and then also the second installment, I ended up returning to South Africa. Um, and this time with the you know, um, intention to go into the archives there, which is, which is heavy work. Um, especially when you think about things like the truth and reconciliation, um, archives, um, and just thinking about what it means to be healing and really questioning what we mean by post-apartheid and also economic apartheid, and how that influences and shapes, again, DJ culture um, in South Africa, because during this time, we have a very famous DJ by the name of Black Coffee. Anyone familiar with Black Coffee? Right? And he rises as a sort of South African superstar, but also sets a new standard um, for a whole new music industry around DJ culture. So very few people know that South Africa has literally one of the hugest like, populations in the world that consumes house music. But I think it's interesting that a lot of times we get surprised when we think about Africa and electronic music. I think that speaks to how in our mind we have been conditioned to think about Africa as a primitive place that has no relationship with technology versus a masterful relationship with technology. Almost flipping the script, you know, like to be able to control, to be able to recreate the sound of the drum and drumming patterns and to also initiate some of the same responses from your dance floor, right, is, is incredible. Um, and so the second time I went there, I was thinking about what we mean by healing. 
I was thinking about what we mean by post-apartheid when we know a lot of the economic legacies of apartheid continue, and then how does that affect how people party, right? How does that affect the way artists are paid? How does that affect who owns the music and the record labels and the distribution companies, right? Those are the questions that I wanted to know, along with listening to you know, the music of that time. So um, I am excited to present um, for you all a sort of sample of the latest installment of, of the Afro-Digital Migration. This is the third installment. But I think it's interesting to think about it as a third installment. The last time that I released a mix was actually in 2013. Um, and so this is my, actually 2014, so this is my first mix in a long time. And it was inspired by not just Rita Miriam Makeba's book, but also um, you know, just kind of tuning into what was happening in South Africa as it relates to COVID and the ways in which <laughs> the continent um, and the response to it um, requires us to have real conversations um, and, and thinking about South Africa in particular and some of the sort of even like bans on alcohol or gender-based violence that increase globally, but just thinking about it in the context of this place that is still healing. Um, and so by the time I started to think about this third installment and also reading Miriam Makeba, um, I heard a sound that came out of South Africa in like the late 19, I mean 2019, and um, thinking about it was important because I am sort of bored with where DJ culture is now because of the access, the amount of music that we have access to at the moment. Um, and so when I say bored, I'm talking about this in relationship to the fact that that USB also means that DJs can travel with like 20,000 songs. And that then becomes challenging when you want to create a sonic or a unique signature, right? Um, what does it mean as a DJ to have access to 20,000 songs, right, in one space? And how does that shape the dance floor? And so I find that Folks are not necessarily showing up to hear, like I said, the homework the DJs have done to kind of create the music, but to hear what is familiar. So part of my boredom has been in an addiction to the familiar on the dance floor, right? That people almost don't know how to move if you introduce or present new music. It's like, right? So it's, there's a major sort of, I think, disconnect. There can be a major disconnect when there is this reliance on, on the familiar. And so when I heard this sound, um, which is a sound, a genre of music called Ama Piano. Um, it's a subgenre of house music. And I was floored because of the use of organs in it. Um, and I know that I've been listening to house music from South Africa for the past decade. Um, and I know that this introduction of the organ, again, did something to the sonic signature of that region. Um, a lot of this sound is being created it was originally created, according to a documentary that I advise you all to watch, just on the story of a Mapiano in the Alexandra, um, not projects, but township. Um, and just thinking about the use of the organ as this sort of global diasporic time machine and what the organ means in black America and black American churches in particular. So listening to this music um, and its addition to the organ just kind of opened my mind to 
an important kind of diasporic dialogue. So I wanted to play samples for you all of this music you guys want to hear, where I'm going with this. Um, and I would also advise you, if you have a moment, to find me, DJ Lene Denise, um, SoundCloud. You'll see a new mix, because part of it, in terms of my approach to this, was thinking about you know, um, just sequence and the story that I wanted to tell at a time when I know many of us are in our homes staring at computers. We have hyper access to some of our favorite people, scholars, thinkers, films. Right, so I feel like it takes us a lot to concentrate and sit with a two-hour movie or read for longer than 30 minutes or listen to an hour-long DJ mix. Like, do we have that kind of attention span? Right, so I was thinking a lot about how to tell this story through sequence. So I will play a few of the tracks just so that you, I, you all can get a feel of the sound. Is it? Oh, no. find some. So 
So yeah, just an example, right, of what's being created right now. I think what is super, super impressive about uh, my piano music um, is not just the use of this live instrument, the organ, but that the majority of the producers um, that have this sort of global ear right now are under the age of 20, right? That it is coming out of youth culture. Um, and that there's an, a dance that accompanies this music. Um, and that this whole response to COVID has been weaved into this, this conversation with Amapiano and the organs. And so the actual ability to kind of create bodies of work because we have been at home. So it'll be interesting to think about what is being created now. But literally, I'm talking about like 15 song albums that are like four minutes each with lyrics, like looking at what's happening politically in South Africa, but also just talking about, you know, your favorite drink, right? Just the black mundane. Um, but just overall having this curiosity, this consistent and persistent curiosity um, around South African house music, um, using those four cultural practices to kind of investigate what's happening there now. So I think that's just sort of an overview of, of the work, right, is using, you know, the chasing of samples, the digging through cramp, the camp, um, sorry, digging through crates, as well as studying album cover art, reading liner notes, and how that landed me into this world that I was able to respond to sonically and also through written word. Um, sort of like as an, a sociologist in the spirit of, you know, anthropologists, community-based anthropologists like Zora Neale Hurston, and using the approach to study my people um, with a certain kind of humanizing lens um, versus a sort of outsider's gaze, and just showing up to black music with questions. That's what I would, you know, encourage us to do now is to show up with black music um, with more questions about our humanity beyond entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think that's it. Um, I, <laughs> thank you all, first of all. Um, and Simone, I don't know if you... <laughs>